0: so uh, hey we're in a series and uh the series is called gospel deep we're actually walking it year long and this first series is uh going through romans chapters 1 through 3 and uh we're talking about the gospel we're talking about the depths of the gospel, and in fact, uh, the truth of the gospel is not just something I need to know or do or whatever to be saved, but then I go on with life. It actually affects every facet of my soul, every aspect of my life and living. That's why we call it gospel deep, all right? And uh, so we're picking up in Romans chapter 2 today. Uh, this is going to connect back to Romans chapter 1. Uh, it's kind of funny how that works. Two after one, and... And, uh, you know, the first word in Romans two says, therefore, and so there's this big connecting going on. And so if you remember a couple of weeks back, Hey, we walked through some pretty heavy stuff in Romans one. And, uh, there's some detail on what it means to take God and who he's revealed himself as we exchange him out, lift ourselves up and the death spiral of sin begins and it doesn't stop. We wipe ourselves out and, uh, in the midst of that list of sins that he gives there, 21 at the end, plus several others throughout, uh, just a huge discussion on our blow-up internally, uh, well, there's still some people in rebellion. They're kind of like, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure if I totally buy it. And so chapter two is actually answering the simple question, seriously, no excuse? Really? What about, what about this guy or this guy? and? And so Paul goes through three case studies in Romans chapter 2. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're simply answering the question, really? No excuse? None? For no one? Let's make sure we grasp that as we dive into this passage. We are going to be covering 29 verses. Okay? So some of you have looked ahead, you've seen it, you're like, oh my word. Is this for real? And we are. We're going to walk through 29. It will be a little more paced in certain spots. Three different case studies and they all head to one same statement. Yup, no excuse. All right, And we're going to walk through that, see how he reveals it to us. So turn with me to Romans chapter 2. We've got ushers coming forward. they got Bibles in their hands. Uh, hey, if you don't have a Bible, we will be walking through all of Romans 2. It would be helpful to have it. Just raise your hand, they'll get one to you, okay? Romans 2 is where we're at. Just keep your hand raised, they'll get a Bible to you. So one thing we have to keep in mind here as we're going through Romans 2, is this is life without Christ, all right? That's what's being defined, life on my own. And uh, what does that look like? Uh, Without Christ is where we're at, right? Everybody say, without Christ. Christ. That's where we're at, okay? This is without Christ, is Romans chapter 2, and the clarity of our need for Christ, all right? And so he's simply answering the questions, how is it possible there's no excuse, and it all comes down to, you know. And then he answers different ways they know. So here we go. First, all stand before the perfect judge and all are found guilty. All stand before the perfect judge and all are found guilty. Uh, this jumps right to the middle of the verses 12 and 13. So we're going to use it. It's kind of the centerpiece of this chapter, all right? It's sort of the rooftop, if you will, on a building that we're building, okay? So chapters, tw- our verses 12 and 13, uh, here we go. It says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. That's precious, isn't it? Heavy stuff we're going to read today all over the place, and notice he uses the phrase all who have sinned twice over, okay? And what are the two categories? Well, all who have sinned without the law, and then all who have sinned under the law, all right? And so that pretty much covers everybody, right? We already know that all have sinned. We've covered that in Romans 1, a couple different spots. We'll see it again throughout Romans. Yes, we all are in one spot, which is all have sinned. Now he breaks it down into two categories. All who sinned without the law, all who sinned under the law. Now, without the law here, it says something happens. All who sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Hang on, how's that fair? I mean, they don't even have the law to even know what's right and wrong. How is it fair that they're going to be held accountable to right and wrong? Well, remember Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23, very clear. It says that God made himself known, revealed his glory, right? And so we see the eternal power and the divine nature of God Almighty revealed. And it says, so they are without excuse, And so we are held without excuse, not because we knew the law and and adhered to every aspect of it. In fact, without all of that, God's still making himself clear and known and understood. It says that our response should have been to honor and thank him, Romans chapter 1, to honor and thank him. And because of that position, under the law or not, we're in trouble. That's what it says, all right? So verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. That word perish, it means to be eternally separated, to die. We covered this a couple weeks ago. It's Revelation chapter 20 coming to a close, all right? It's when everything finally gets unveiled, God's wrath poured out, everyone who is separated from God is finally forcefully separated, wrath expressed. Yes, it will happen. and Yes, Revelation 20 is true perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Oh, great. We were revealed more information as we had the law. All that means is we're held even more accountable. Are you hearing it? It's like there's details within the law. By the way, what is the law? Well, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the first five books of the Bible. And uh, as they hold on to that law, as they work through that law, they understood things like the Ten Commandments and others, right? It says, not only will you be held accountable to the revealing of God, Romans 1, you're now also held accountable to all the detail of right and wrong. Okay, great. That was helpful. Now I'm even more under it. And uh, this doesn't seem to be getting better. And uh, right, we're all in the same spot, whether under the law or not, in dire need. Uh, perishing, judged by the law. He goes one step further, verse 13, for it is not the hearts of the law, or I'm sorry, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. He's like, please hear me. All you who have the law, it's not that you put it on your bookshelf and it's all important because it's up there. Or that you even read it. Or that you memorize it. Or that you could quote it off to somebody else. That's not what makes it valuable. What makes it valuable is when you follow it to perfection. To perfection. Be a doer always. Okay, that's the call to it. That's the purpose of it. And if we come up short, well, know this. Then you'll be judged by the law. What we should hear in verses 12 and 13 is not a lot of hope, man. All of us in the same boat. Remember, we're talking about again, without Christ, right? Without Christ, we're all in one spot, in need. And uh, all of us hurting. All of us taking that death spiral that we talked about, that sin spiral of two weeks ago, where God gives us over and we experience more and more of what it's like to have us in charge. And uh, that's what He's talking about here, okay? All are in need. It's that simple. And so here's the deal. I thought, well, what better way than to remember that than to create a cheer? So here's the simple of it. Okay. It's, it's all, it's this simple. Uh, everybody is in need. And so let's just do this, this group, you're going to have to bring it. Okay. Uh, we're going to start spelling it out. How do you spell it? Starts with the letter A. So just say it loud. A. And then Okay. A. Say it with me. And then L. Good deal. And then? And what's that spell? All right. Let's do it one more time. I got a simple question for you. When we say everybody's in need, I don't know if I get it. We all have sin. We've all walked away from God. What does that mean? Who? Who? It's hilarious. You guys brought it that time. You're like, I'm not going to be last this time. And, <laughs> and uh, hilarious. Thanks for kind of representing there. Oh, it's that simple. Please get that. That's what we need to hear in it. All right. In the pinnacle verses 12 and 13, we all are in the same boat, perishing, in need. Without Christ, we got a big problem. All right. We're trampling on his glory and there's high cost. All right. Simple question, do you understand your need for the Savior? Are you ready to grasp Him and all that He is for you? Okay? So, second point here. So, that includes, here we go, we're going to walk into three different case studies now. So, that includes, first, yeah, the moral guy who speaks against the horror of sin, yet practices sin. The moral guy who speaks against the horror of sin, yet practices sin. We'll start in verse 1 here. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. He starts out, therefore. And when we see the therefore, we say... So therefore, therefore. It's a connecting phrase, right? What's the purpose of it? And uh, it's always there to connect to the back. If you look back two or three verses there, it talks about a list of sin and says, and those who practice these things, which by the way we now know is all, and those who practice these things deserve to die. Eternal separation from God. Uh, Heavy. And then there's people in rebellion and they're pushing back. And he says, Therefore, uh, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges... Like, listen, how often we get into a spot where we're like, did you see that guy? We're, we're capable of recognizing somebody else's sin, right? I can't believe what they were doing or what's in their heart, what came out of their mouth, the thing they thought to express. And, and all of a sudden we start to point out other people and well, what's the big deal with that? Well, he's basically saying, listen, you have no excuse, you who judge. Why? Uh, well, because you knew enough to be able to know it was wrong and call it out over here. You understand right and wrong. You're going to be held accountable for knowing right and wrong. That's a big piece of what he's saying here. Okay. And uh, a lot of people look at this and they try to say they're, well, he's trying to say something about judging being wrong and uh, they're kind of missing it. He's actually saying you knew enough to be able to say it was right or wrong. Come on, man. Now step up and live that yourself. And Let's just make this clear, though. Judging, uh, there's something that we have to understand about judging and what it is and what it isn't, okay? Judging, it's, it's not recognizing that something is sin. Like, oh, that's bad. That's called discernment, okay? Judging is not recognizing sin somewhere out in the world or in somebody else's life or in your own. That's not judging. Uh, judging is not sitting down with a friend and saying to him, bro, I love you too much to so just let this keep going. It's going to eat you up. Let's talk through this. How can I help out? And let's walk through this so that you can get victory here. And, dude, that's gonna break you. That sin. It's time to go on it. And, uh, no, that's loving, and that's gracious. Well, what is judging then? Well, judging is when you go. So I must be better than you. Judging. It's when I've decided that you're right or wrong, and I'm hoping that because I can see your wrongness, it pushes you down the scale. It must kind of then, by default, be pushing me up the scale. Maybe it makes me a little better with God. And while I'm not perfect, at least I know enough right and wrong to stay away from what he's doing. And so that's what he's talking about. And he's like, hey, you think it makes you better off? Are you kidding me? You know right from wrong, and it says, and yet you practice the same things. You're invested in sin yourself. It's not helping you, it's hurting you. That you're accountable for knowing right and wrong. You can see it out in the world, and yet you do it yourself. Think of it like this. Imagine this giant swimming pool in the backyard. Hasn't been cleaned in like two years. The water's like greenish, yellowish, murky, cloudy. You can't see anything down below. There's leaves floating in it. There's crud all over the top of it. There's spider webs across the leaves. The wind blows and muck like slides on the top. You know what I'm talking about? And in the middle of the pool, there's this guy just doing this, right? And, and you're like, what is he thinking about? And then all of a sudden you're like, well, oh, actually, that looks kind of refreshing. It's a hot day. And, Boom, you dive in and you go underwater and the stuff and the muck and the dirt and the filth and you come up out and it's dripping off of you and you start kind of paddling next to him. And the guy's like, what are you doing? Don't you see you're swimming in muck? And he's like me, you've been in it the whole time, right? And here they are pointing fingers at each other, swimming in the cesspool of, that's what he's saying. That's what's going on. And, And one guy's like, Well, I'm in the three-foot end. It's only up to here on me. You're over here. and Right? That's what we start doing. We start trying to measure the level of in the cesspool that we really are. When really it's just in it that's the problem. Okay? And that's what he's saying. we got a problem because you see right from wrong and yet you practice the wrong. He says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. I love that. Paul's like, I'm not even talking about it. We know. The judgment of God rightly falls. The end. And so that's it. Let's just take it as fact. Um, those who practice such things. There isn't an excuse out. Judgment upon. The end. Remember, this is life without Christ. If I'm going to stand on my own, here's where I stand. Under judgment. Now, there's two reasons we might think that's okay to hang there, right? And so Paul's going to address those. He goes, Do you suppose, O oh man you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? That's his first challenge. Like seriously, are you thinking you're going to like get away with it? God's going to like go, ah, never mind. Ah, forget it. Or maybe you'll be busy over in that area and it just won't come around to me. Is that what's going to happen? Why do you think you're going to get away with this, man? Maybe you think God's just going to forget about it. Uh, Or maybe even worse, he says, or you, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And I love this verse. I'm telling you, there have been numerous times where we've been counseling and we've had people tell us flat out, I don't care if what I'm about to do is wrong, I'm going to do it. And God will just forgive me. Hmm. That's not a good plan, man. All right? And God will just have to forgive me. Do you hear it? Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? That's exactly what they're doing. I presume upon his kindness. All right? That means God giving us things. Like I might be in sin. I might be walking in selfishness. And even in the midst of walking in it, he does nice things. I mean, the rain and the sun kind of come out on my yard as much as the guy next to me and good things kind of happen. And I've got a decent job and my kids are doing okay. And and in the midst of it, God's kindness in a momentary setting is coming out. And so here we are like, guess it's just going to keep on going. Maybe it doesn't matter if I sin. And presuming upon his kindness. Be careful. Don't think that that continues ad infinitum. In fact, it goes on more. He says forbearance and patience. Forbearance, that's withholding that which is due you in punishment. He's holding back on unleashing what's due us. Listen, as we say, God's glory exchanged and whatever I want it to be about me in that moment, immediate punishment is due. And God forbears do we presume that he's just going to continue to do that forever? Know this, in forbearance, there is always an end where the punishment then comes. Do you hear me? Forbearance has an end, and he'll talk about it in just a second. Uh, and Forbearance and patience, that's like in the midst of us stomping on the very glory of God, making it about me. He tolerates it in the moment, putting up with the sin as he's working for a bigger cause. All right? Do we presume upon God's kindness and forbearance and patience? I'll do what I want to do and you just, you be the God of love that I like to know. You know, no judgment, no righteousness, just love. Just forgive me. And so how many times have I had somebody say, yeah, I know it's wrong to go get the divorce. We're doing it anyway. God can just forgive us. That's a real statement. I'm up to four on that one. And uh, be careful, I'm telling you, presuming upon God and his kindness and his forbearance is, well, it's got some bad stuff at the back end of it. He goes one step further here. He says, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. I love that. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Now note this, it does not say his forbearance and patience are meant to lead you to repentance. It says his kindness it says, in the midst of us, in the muck of life, in the selfishness of sin, in the evil expressions of me that stomp on his glory, he still gives out graciously. And the moment where we finally recognize the horror of our sin before him, and yet the unwarranted kindness coming towards us, it drills you to your knees, saying, Lord, please forgive me. Father, I'm done with that. And as you stand and brush off, you turn from that sin and move away. His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, not to more sin. Please don't presume upon God and try to play games and toy with Him. He's the almighty creator, glorious King of the universe, righteous judge. There is currently forbearance and patience going on. Hear me. His kindness must move us to repentance. That's the plan. Not to using him all the more. Well, What if I use him all the more? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Uh, Yikes. Storing up wrath. This is talking about Revelation chapter 20 now. This is talking about the time of judgment. This is talking about that time where those who are found separated from Christ, not trusting in him, are ending up being put into a place called eternal fire for eternity. Revelation 20. It is the wrath stored up, forbearance having its final end. Do not stand on your own before your God. That's the call. Without Christ, this is where we're at. All right? Dire need. Now, notice it says right after it, he will render to each one according to his works. What? He will render according to according to his works? I thought it was about faith. I thought faith saved. Now I'm having to work it? What are we going to do here? What are we saying about this? Yeah, hear me. God does judge the works. Now, everybody check in and listen really well for quite a while here, all right? Yes, the works are being checked. Now watch what it says to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, well, he gives eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Uh, Eternal life, wrath and fury. Uh, Eternal life, wrath and... Which one would you choose? Right? It's kind of obvious as he says it out, but here's what we do in America. We're like, well, how much of the bad stuff am I allowed to have where I still get the good thing? Are you hearing it? Like I'm trying to ride this fence and I need to know how much latitude of play I have here and I'm going to try to get away with... And so Paul says, well, let's just clarify it. Verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Not all evil. Who does evil. Any evil. Any one Evil would constitute does evil, all right? And there's tribulation and there's distress for every human being who does evil. Have we not already covered that we all are doing evil, that we all are in a selfish death spiral? So in this moment, as you read this letter, the astute reader would be like, I think he's saying we're all going to hell. I think that's what he's saying. Now look what he says right after it. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, please do not think there's something special about your ethnicity or your ownership of the law that sits on your bookshelf. Be careful. God's judging the works. Okay? It says, But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. Okay? Now let's really understand this a little better. The word good is going to be a really big deal here. All right? In the original language, okay, well, let's talk about it this way. In America, we say, good, you know, good. It's not great. It's not excellent. Certainly not perfect, but it's it's good, right? That's not at all what this word means, okay? We have to be very careful with that. In the original language, it's like God Almighty divine perfection, stunning awesomeness, glorious righteousness, no mistakes, I'm telling you, the well-versed, well-read Jew who hears, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. He's like, well, I can't measure up to that. Exactly. Like, that's the point we need to be getting out of this. And, and uh, any other verse to point that out to him? Yeah. In uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 19. Luke 18, verse 19. The rich man is approaching Jesus and he says, Good teacher... And Jesus says, hang on, only God is good. Basically, do you mean what you're saying? Do you get that I am divine? Here's the phrase, only God is good. We better walk away with that and grasp when that word good is used in the original language. It's God alone, divine perfection. All right. And he's saying real clearly here, glory and honor and peace for everyone who is divine and perfect and never made one mistake. Uh-oh, that's a problem. And so he's creating a very uh, hypothetical statement, if you will, here, where he's making it clear that there is a need. And perfection alone is what's going to bring solution, and that's not what we have. It says, for God shows no partiality. Uh, hey, Jew, uh, you have a Jewish faith, you have this ethnicity, you have the law bookshelf, you feel special about your bloodline, you can tie yourself back to some tribe, be careful. God measures it the same way for you as well as the guy who's what you would consider heathen. We're all in the same boat. That's what he's saying here, okay? Very clear, very obvious, very simple. Um, I just want to make sure we understand this is saying our works are going to be judged, period. God does not change that plan. Some people teach that form of Christianity. God's like, yeah, never mind. that didn't work. Let's go to a new plan. Uh, We're looking for faith now. That's not what's going on. And so let's be really careful. I need all eyes up here now, everybody hearing, okay? Big deal. God is looking for absolute perfection. Well, Tim, we've already made that clear. I'm coming up short on it. What do we do now? Second Corinthians 5, 21. So he made him, Jesus, to who knew no sin, to be sin for us. Our sin on Jesus. His righteousness, though, on us. So that we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, I'm going to use a big word now, all right? In systematic theology terms. So systematic, that means like I'm reading through the Bible systematically. And I'm putting it all together. And my systematic theology comes with this conclusion. The word imputation, it means to count towards. My sin counts towards Jesus. Everybody say, that's unfair. I agree with you. Our sin on him, but it's God's plan. He takes it. He knew no sin, but he takes our sin on himself. And then his righteousness gets applied to us. Everybody say, and that's unfair. unfair. And yet we're carrying his righteousness now. Praise be to God. And his righteousness counted to me. And God's still judging works. But now when he looks upon you, he's like, let's see. uh, Well, I see everything that Jesus did when I look upon you. Your works, well, their Jesus works counted to you. And how does he have the right to do that? Because he has already put the penalty on Christ at the cross. He can do what he wills as the judge now. And he's counting Christ's righteousness towards us. He's clothing us with his unbelievable righteousness. Wow. Remember back to chapter 1? For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. This is what he's talking about. God is the judger of works. But the beauty of it is where we come up woefully short. He says, come to me broken as you are. I will clothe you with my righteousness. Now, this is a letter, right? And we're in chapter 2. In chapter 4, he's going to make that clear. Uh, But for us, that'd be weeks away as we take it out. So that's why I'm doing this a little bit here. I want to make clear where we really stand with this, all right? Christ's righteousness clothing us. Romans 4, it says that our faith allows it to be counted to us as righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness now counted towards me because of faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, I'm being measured for my works, found woefully in need, paid for at the cross of Calvary, Christ's righteousness now on me. That's why there's one hope, Jesus Christ. That's it, man. If you understand the problem of imputation and that it only comes through faith, That's why you clearly get there is one way Jesus Christ. It is his perfect righteousness counted to me. It's not good enough. That's woefully short. It's stunningly divinely perfect or eternally separated. We must put God on the throne. And Christ's righteousness then clothes us. What an awesome privilege. That's what it is, all right? Imputation. Counting. Jesus Christ for me. Isn't it easy to judge, it says here at the end, but God shows no partiality. Praise God for that. And uh, he's not an unfair judge. Uh, but we as human beings, man, we're lame, aren't we? It's pretty easy to quickly look at some other guy and size him up. There was a bishop, he was going over to Europe uh, years back, so he was taking an ocean liner. And uh, so we went down to his cabin to get settled, and it turned out he was assigned a cabin mate little uncomfortable, didn't really like that, didn't necessarily feel comfortable with the guy. So he went up to the front desk and he said, Hey, I have this gold watch and a few extra things of money and whatever. I, not much, but if you could just put it in one of your safety deposit boxes, I'm just, I'm not real comfortable with my roommate and my cabin mate. So if you could do that and takes it back in, puts it in there and brings him back the key and says, here you go, sir. And he said, again, I, I'm not trying to be judgmental or anything. I just, just didn't have a good vibe. And he said, that's okay. Your cabin mate was up here right before you were, putting his stuff in. By the way, I don't know if you know this, but you both are in the ministry. True story. How easy it is for us to look at someone and judge. And we see something on the outside and we're like, I would never be like that. would be like this, but never like that. And let's be careful, all right? Just judging alone, being aware of where others are right and wrong, makes it clear that we're aware of right and wrong and it leaves us without excuse and in dire need of a savior. All right? Simple question. Are you aware of sin and wrong? Do you see it around you? Do you get it? Do you understand that that leaves you without excuse? All are in need of a savior. All right? So that's the first piece. Second, so what about the what about the Gentile who hears his own conscience yet knowingly violates? What about the Gentile who hears his own conscience yet knowingly violates? And uh says here uh, verse fourteen for when Gentiles who do not have the law by do by nature uh what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Like, what do you do with the guy who doesn't have the law, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill, honor your father and mother? Uh, What do you do when that guy's naturally expressing what the law would say and he never has even seen it? What do you say about that? Well, what you have to say is, well, that God's been doing some work in that man already and making it clear. It says, even though they do not have the law, it says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Written on their hearts. I love that phrase. And uh, listen, here's a great way to think of this. I've used this illustration before, but good illustration. When God creates man, Genesis 1, right? In the image of God. So he writes image of God and it's imperfect. It's perfect. But then sin, like your hand, like you take it on a chalkboard and you go. And now you can kind of read image of God sort of in there, but it's swiped over. That's what you and I are born into. A broken image of God. All right? Surely from conception, Psalm 51:5, struggling with sin, and yet some stamp of God still on us. God's way of phrasing it here is to say the law is written on your hearts. It's a term from Jeremiah, the prophet, but he's saying you've got the law, you've got an awareness of right and wrong, at least at some level. And then he even goes on a little bit there. He says uh, while their conscience also bears witness, and then conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them you know, your conscience, that thing that kind of nags at you when you're about ready to do something wrong. And it's like, dude, you shouldn't be going there. Don't do that. Right. And there's this thing inside you and you're like, yeah, but I, but I really kind of want to don't go there. Like that's your conscience speaking. Right. And uh, that's the big deal. We have even without the law an awareness of right and wrong written onto our hearts, uh, a clarity in our conscience. Now, we can destroy that. We've seen that up above in Romans 1, right? As we continue to go after self, God gives us over, and we end up debased mind is what it describes it as. That's like our conscience is seared. We can't even tell right from wrong anymore, okay? So we can mar that conscience. But the reality is God's given us some awareness of right and wrong. And it leaves us accountable. All right? That's where we're at. And... Uh... He says here at the end, so that they are, um, the thoughts accuse or even excuse, when does that happen? Well, you're accused when you don't listen to your conscience, and you're excused when you did, right? When you finally went, ah, oh, I shouldn't do that, I've got to walk away, and shouldn't be thinking that way, I've got to be done with it, and you let the conscience speak. Um, it says, on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. That day, here we are again back to Revelation chapter 20 and the final judgment and the works being measured out and the secrets of men. Are you hearing it? It's like, hey, others may not even know what you're going through, but God does know. And he knows that you're gone in rebellion against him and you're not worshiping him. And the secrets of your heart are being revealed in that end day. Again, remember, this is without Christ, where do we stand? And it's in dire need. All right? Big deal. Conscience. I just wrote a couple things down about conscience to make sure we understand uh, its weakness and strength. Here's one. Once we pacify our conscience by calling something a necessary evil, it begins to look more and more necessary and less and less evil. Have you noticed that? It's a necessary evil. What does that phrase mean? It's necessarily against the very character of God. What does that mean? How do we get away with that? That doesn't even make sense. And all of a sudden we're like, it's more and more necessary and less and less evil. Conscience, we can sway it. Here's uh, Leo Tolstoy. The antagonism between life and conscience may be removed in two ways. By a change of life or a change of conscience. Uh, If you don't listen to your conscience, you'll sear it and change it and get used to more and more sin. Uh, Or you listen and you adjust. All right? The only two answers we have to conscience. Here's the last one. The trouble with the advice, follow your own conscience is that most people follow it like someone following a wheelbarrow. They direct it wherever they want to go, and then they follow behind it. Conscience. It is something God gives us. It is something that leaves us uh, accountable, and we begin to try to change our own conscience to try to get feeling good with ourselves. That's not the fix. It's not patching conscience to feel good with me. It's getting right before God Almighty. Okay? Life without Christ. We have no excuse If we knew enough to judge the one around us, then we know enough of right and wrong. If we know enough in our own lives to just be seeing and hearing the conscience speaking out, then we have no excuse. And Simple question for you. Are you listening to the moral compass within you? Are you listening to the moral compass within you? Uh, Or maybe here's a better question. Is your moral compass not so moral anymore? And maybe it's time to start hearing from God on some things that need to change, all right? Our understanding of right and wrong leaves us without excuse. And here's the third one, Jew who relies on the law, yet knowingly violates. Relies on the law, yet knowingly violates. He says in verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, then he goes into some awesome list of the Jewish privilege, all right? And uh, what good is there in being Jewish? Here's a great statement. And uh, so he says, Hey, you who are a Jew and you rely on the law, do you boast in God? Do you know his will? Like I get what God's wanting done. Do you approve what is excellent? Like I know which things honor God because I'm looking into the law. Because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind. Are you sure of that? Like you run into people and you're like, you don't get it, man you got to follow me, I understand the law. Follow me, I'll help you out. And, uh, Or a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, helping raise people up. Uh, this is the Jewish position with the law. Having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Wow, we'll get back to that in just a second. Look what he says though. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? What good is there in having that book of law up there or even having some great classes you run on it if you're not actually going to follow it? And uh, be careful. I love the statement, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, all right? It's like everything you need for life and living right here in the scriptures, in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is what he's talking about in the law. Those first five books of the Bible, enough to grasp the holiness of God and what he's going after and our need for a savior, all right? And and yet he's going further than that. He's like, you need to understand the embodiment of all knowledge and truth. And uh reminds me of a movie. Do you remember this Tom Cruise movie, Uh, A Few Good Men? You remember that movie? A few good men. And so Tom Cruise, he's going to be uh, uh, going against this general and trying to get him to confess a few things, right? And at the very end, as he's getting ready to go after him, he picks up the glass of water to take a drink and his hand is shaking like crazy and he sets it down and goes over and he's trying to get him to say that they did a code red, right? You got to admit what's going on here. We need to hear. And he finally looks at him, asking him what he wants. And He goes, I want the truth. And his answer back was, you can't handle the truth, you can't handle the truth man. That's exactly what Paul's saying here. You're claiming you want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Are you teaching yourself? You're not even letting it speak into your own life. Same thing he's saying here. And uh, he goes on with some examples. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. And uh, here's a quote from Isaiah 52, 5. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Sad statement. And uh, it really comes down to this. We claim we know God. And then we won't listen to him, adhere to him, follow him. It's all about me. The world isn't stupid. They see that coming down. And Israel, at this point where Isaiah was challenging, was like, you're making a mockery of God's name. What does this law mean if it doesn't really call you to follow him and make him your God? Okay? Uh, to have the law leaves us very accountable. Now, notice what it says here, uh, verse 25. It gets a little touchy now, so everybody's going to have to be with me on this, all right? As we walk through this, it's easy to get lost in words and counter words, and, and uh, we're just going to explain it real quick. It says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. Circumcision, this is a surgery that guys would go through to indicate that they were following God, that they were of the nation of Israel, the chosen ones, all right? It's a physical, outward, fleshly surgery, circumcision. It's supposed to indicate that you're following God. Notice what he says, for that physical, outward surgery is of value if you obey the law. Man, don't tell me you had surgery. Tell me you are following after God Almighty and giving him your all. Right? That's what he's talking about here. For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. He's calling out to the Jew and he's like, please hear me on this. You know, when we see someone who has gone through this process, this circumcision ceremony, this conviction and commitment to following God, but then they don't, we call them out on that. And that does not put them in good stead with God. They are in need. Circumcision is as uncircumcision. And all the Jews were like, how true that is. How true that is. Uncircumcision is where that guy's at. That's the same as not at all. And uh, okay, are you getting it? And Paul's like, I just set you up. This can become this, right? And going through the physical is like, it never even happened. It all depends on the law. All right, well then let me reverse it on you. So if a man who is uncircumcised keep the precepts of the law... Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Isn't it really all just about following the law then, guys? Isn't that really where it's supposed to be? A perfect following of God's divine law is where we need to be. Don't tell me you've gotten a surgery done. Start talking to me about where your heart's at. And now he goes into something extra here. He says, Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law i'm telling you they're making clear that there is a god as he follows them and you aren't please be careful with that uh, next statement for no one is a jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical really circumcision isn't outward and physical when i read this i was like what Paul's like changing the rules. Dude, that's what it means. I'm, I'm confused. And so I was spending some time this week going, God, what are you trying to say by this? And, 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 and this is it. It comes out right after it. Uh, he says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Circumcision uh, is not outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit. Okay, now we're just making stuff up. Like, really? I thought circumcision was outward fleshly. What are we saying here? The circumcision of the heart phrase. I appreciate it. And Paul, I know you're writing from the Holy Spirit. And so this is inspired. I'm going to learn from it. I don't get it. Uh, really? Circumcision of the heart. And uh, so I went and looked it up. And uh, it turns out it's all over the Old Testament. Uh, circumcision of the heart. In fact, it's in the law. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and that you may live and live in Him. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6. That's just one among many where God is like, I am so not worried about the outer flesh. It's your heart I'm looking after. It's a metaphor, man. I want you to see that you are dedicated and set apart to me. Is that where your heart is? Have a circumcision of the heart. Be following and willing to obey him, putting him in charge. Lord, please forgive me. I'm done with it being about me. May you be glorified. Notice he says, by the spirit, not by the letter. I love that. Circumcision of the heart is a work of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3, 16 to 18, we talk about it a lot. The Spirit's glory pouring over us is what transforms us. It's what changes our heart. The Spirit's work in your life. It only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Please hear me as we tie this together now. God does render to everyone according to their works. Newsflash, every one of us has come up woefully short on the works department. There isn't one person who sits in good spot. Well, maybe I shouldn't be held accountable to that measuring stick. No, you knew. You knew enough to judge another person. You knew right and wrong. You knew. You knew enough to have your conscience screaming within you and the law written on your heart. You knew. You knew you had the law itself and you were hearing it and trying to teach others, but you weren't following. You knew there is no excuse. That's Romans chapter 2. It leaves us in a heavy singular spot. Please hear me on this. Like I said, this comes up in two chapters in Romans 4. But it's good for us to celebrate it right here and right now. That our hope is in Jesus Christ. That while my works do miss the mark, He is willing to impute His righteousness upon me when, when I have faith and trust in Him. I'm asking Jesus Christ to forgive me of my sin. I get that I'm counted as unworthy. Lord, I'm putting you back on the throne and worshiping you. Please forgive me. You're my God. I worship you with all I have. We serve a God where it's all about him. Everything in Christ. Nothing without Christ. All I have. Christ alone. His righteousness. His forgiveness. He took my sin upon him at the cross. Praise be to God. And the wrath do me, Revelation 20, poured out on Christ at the cross. We have a moment in time to say this. Lord, please take my sin and put it on you. And take your righteousness and put it on me. I don't deserve your kindness or your forbearance or your patience. And I'm broken. Forgive me and lead me to repentance. Through the kindness you pour on one who doesn't deserve it. You are awesome, God. And I worship you. And all of God's people said, Romans chapter 2. There is none without excuse. Praise God we have Christ. Let's pray.